Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our uh, talk and study this morning is Some of His Faithful Ones. And in looking at that, we want to uh, be mindful of the words of Paul, where he says that we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses and we are to take courage and we are to strengthen our faith as we look at the faith and the witness of some of the faithful people in the history of this earth. And we want to look at uh, one faithful example today and we want to see what lessons we can uncover and learn to apply in our lives today that we also might be some of his faithful ones. This is our purpose today. And as we begin, I just have a little uh, story that I hope will interest the young and the not-so-young of us here today. And this will give us a backdrop as to what we're talking about today. And uh, many years ago, the time had come when the Pope desired to raise funds to actually build St. Peter's Basilica. It wasn't up yet, and he wanted to build it, he wanted to build it in Rome. And so he came up with this great ingenious idea. And he sent out Friar Johann Tetzel to sell papal indulgences. Indulgences were something that you could purchase with money that would give you forgiveness of sins. You could pay, essentially, for your salvation. And so in the year 1517, Johann Tetzel appeared in the neighborhood of Wittenberg, carrying out his commission in the most insolent and fraudulent manner. He promised that when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And you can just imagine how the people would have bought his wares. They would buy their relatives out of hell, you see, and they could buy themselves out of sin and guilt. So it was difficult for the people to resist such appeals to selfishness and to love for one's parents. And naturally, the deluded people bought his wares. You see, he made sin easy. Those who purchased those buckets of sin from the Pope, of course, wanted the value for their money, and so crime abounded wherever the pardon seller went. Now, the absurdity of this practice is illustrated in a very, very interesting story that took place that involves Mr. Johann Tetzel. One day, Tetzel had uh, picked up a vast sum of money in the city of Leipzig from his sales. He had a box full of money. He had been selling many indulgences. And as he was in the city, he was approached one day by a man who asked him, could I purchase an indulgence beforehand for a crime that I'm intending to commit? Tetzel said, yes, provided we can agree on the price. And so the bargain was struck, the money paid, and the absolution bearing the seal of the Pope was delivered in due form. Not long after this, Tetzel was leaving the city, well loaded with cash, when he was met by a robber who clubbed him, stole the money, and before leaving, produced an indulgence recently purchased and said, this is the crime I intended to commit. And here is my pardon from the Pope. 
took off. George, Duke of Saxony, a zealous friend of Rome, hearing of this robbery at first was very angry, but being informed of the whole story, he laughed heartily and pardoned the criminal who was already forgiven by the Pope. Such is the case and the state of affairs that resulted from the evils of the Roman Church. Now this humorous story illustrates well the absurdity of what was taking place, the sad uh, situation that happened. Living at that time and in that place was a man by the name of Martin Luther, who heard of the sale of indulgences and he often spoke against them from his pulpit. But finally he was moved to action when he was met by a stumbling drunkard who handed him a certificate of indulgence as an excuse and warrant for his action. Infuriated by his blasphemous uh, action, Luther, at noon in October of 1517, famously posted at the door of the castle of Wittenberg the 95 Theses of Propositions Against Indulgences. And of course, we all know the story. His words traveled all over Germany and the world. And before long, John Tetzel's business came to a stop. And the attention of Rome and the Pope himself was called into question. And the Reformation was well on its way. Martin Luther, of course, is a man and a name that we closely associate with the Reformation, perhaps above anyone else. Luther, you see, had never been able to find peace and comfort. He was a monk and he was the best of all monks as he describes his own self. He could never overcome his sense of guilt despite everything that he could do, whether it be good works, whether it be prayers, whether it be penance or alms. He was burdened and his confessor gave him a piece of advice that is probably the most useful piece of advice ever given. He advised him to read the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, Luther discovered a truth that rocked his life. And not only his life individually, but the entire world, really. In Romans, Luther learned that God had already forgiven his sins freely. Not because of his works in Germany, but because of Christ's work on Calvary. And we talked about that this morning. What Christ had accomplished for him. This discovery freed his soul and the souls of countless others as it spread through Europe and the world. And so the watchword of the Reformation was what Paul spoke about in Romans. Let's go to Romans and see what is it. How Paul summarizes that wonderful gospel that brings liberation. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we will read verses 16 and 17. The summary of the gospel that Paul gives is really the watchword of the Reformation. In verse 16, the Bible tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That phrase was the watchword of the Reformation. The just shall live by faith. You know where that phrase comes from? 
comes from the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4. Let's go there. Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4. He's a minor prophet, he's a little harder to find. He's uh, towards the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4. And I believe, were it not for Paul quoting this passage in the New Testament repeatedly, we would not place on it the importance that it deserves. In Habakkuk 2.4, God's word tells us, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. And this is the passage that Paul quotes three times. He read it once in Romans, he quotes it again in Galatians and in Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. This is what freed Luther's soul, and this is what is designed to free our souls. As we realize that Christ has accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. This is what brought Luther into a hard place with friends and with foes. You know, his friends, the fellow monks who are with him in the same order, begged him not to bring shame on their order and to stop what he was trying to do. His enemies, all the papists, rose in anger and in opposition against what Luther was suggesting. Not only that, but Tetzel himself decided to write a series of counter-theses to counteract what Luther had written in his thesis. And some of the things that he wrote are very interesting. I will just read a few. This is what Tetzel wrote. He said, Christians must be taught that whosoever says that the soul does not fly away from purgatory as soon as the money tinkles on the bottom of the strong box is in error. Here's another thing that he said. Christians must be told that in matters of faith, they ought to lean and rest more upon the opinion of the Pope as manifested by his decisions than on the opinion of all wise men as drawn by them out of Scripture. And here's another one. Christians must be taught that there are many things which the Church regards as authentic articles of universal truth, although they are not found either in the canon of Scripture or in ancient doctrines. And here was the battle brought out. Will the, God, will the Word of God and what it says win the day, or will the tradition and custom of man, and particularly at that time the Pope, win the day? Luther was faced with an incredible storm of persecution, and opposition, as we said, both from friends and foes. And yet, Luther was able to withstand all that. And he was able to earn uh, the reputation that he has today because of what he did. We want to see how he did that. What sustained him through it all was obviously the grace of God. How did Luther come to learn to trust and have faith in God's grace to stand in the opposition of the strongest men in the world at the time? And the only answer is faith. And faith is intrinsically tied with the word of faith. We know in God's word we're told that faith comes how? By hearing and hearing by word of God. You see, Luther had spent time in God's word. And spending time in God's word, he had become acquainted with the author of the word and his faith took hold on Christ. This is a very important lesson for us because God used Luther to build and repair a breach in the wall of truth. 
you, you made a great uh, work of repair. He is uh, one of the foremost reformers in rebuilding that bridge. And if we would love to do the same type of work, we must become acquainted with the word that Luther became acquainted with. Not only Luther, but all the reformers actually were students of the word. It was this solid rock on which they stood facing the relentless opposition that came their way. And this word taught them to have faith in the author of the word. We're told that uh, not just Luther, but Wycliffe, us, as well as Luther, all the reformers really stood upon the platform of the word of God. The whole word of God and nothing but the word of God. They abandoned the sophistries of the schools and rested solely upon this declaration which must be the basis of every true reform in all ages. While this principle was adhered to, the Reformation succeeded gloriously. When the principle was abandoned, the Reformation suffered accordingly. In the Word of God lies the strength of the work of God. And this is from the book Ecclesiastical Empire by A.T. Jones. This is a vital, vital lesson for us. We cannot ignore it. It's a simple lesson. It's a basic lesson. We all really know it. And yet, it is probably one that we take most for granted. You see, remember, the Word of God in those days was very precious. It was very rare. Not everybody had a Bible like we do today. And I hope everybody has a Bible today. You see, back then, Bibles were a very, very rare thing. And the Word of God was actually locked up in the language of the educated only. And so the people, the regular people, had no access to the Word of God. And the Word of God, we're told very clearly in the Bible, that is one of the titles of the author of that Word, and that is Jesus Christ. And in the Word of God is where we partake of the heavenly manna, as we just sang a little earlier. To feed on the heavenly manna. To grow in the grace of what Christ has provided for us. This is what we must feed our souls on. This is exactly what Jesus told us. Let's see, John chapter 6. Very familiar verse. John chapter 6. And verse 63. John 6, 63. Jesus speaking about his word. And the power that is contained in his word. And he says, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Spiritual life comes from feeding on the word of life. Because the spirit of its author, the spirit of Jesus, is contained in those words. That spirit is also the power of Christ. His word is spirit and life. And this is why Paul says in Romans, and this is what Luther would have read, Romans chapter 8. Notice how this is intrinsically tied together. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Romans 8 and verse 9. Speaking of the spirit, Paul says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Hear this plainly. Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And when we have that, we really have the Spirit or the life of 
Christ himself, the author of that word. This is why Jesus said very plainly, I am the vine and ye are the branches. And he said in those words, let's turn to John chapter 15, because there is a very important lesson we have to learn here. How we can have Christ with his complete works in us, as we were talking about that this morning. John chapter 15. Notice the importance of that. And verse 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, he can do nothing. Here is the transaction. Abide in me, and I in you. Notice how this takes place. Just a few verses later. Verse 7. Now notice carefully. He says, if ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what he will, and it shall be done unto you. If you notice carefully, you'll see that Christ abiding in us is equal to His Word abiding in us. So in order to have Christ in us, we must have His Word in us. Because His Word is Spirit. His Word is life. It is His own Spirit and His own life. That's how we can have Him dwelling in us. Luther and the Reformers had learned this truth by first-hand experience. We must learn the same truth by first-hand experience. Not because of what I am saying. But it must be your own experience or my own experience. To them it was not a theory, it was a reality, a living reality. So much so that many of them were willing to sacrifice their very own life for it. And the day will come, perhaps not too far, when some of us might be brought to the very same decision. Will we sacrifice our life for that? This is where Luther learned that truth and this is where we are to cultivate our faith. So this is a very important lesson for us. I don't want us to miss as we look at this wonderful story. In order to be repairers in the breach of truth, we must study the Word. We must have faith in the Word of faith. Daily we must consume it, and daily we must apply it in our lives. Very often, sadly, we neglect the Word. How many times has the word been neglected by us? Taken for granted. Left aside. Has anyone lost their Bibles before? You have to put your hand up. If you've ever lost your Bible, did you feel the terrible tragedy that it was with all your special markings and notes and all the collection over the years of your Bible and you lose your Bible? You know, it's uh, only when we lose something that we begin to value it. And uh, it's sad that... Uh, I hope you found your Bible after you lost it, some of you if you have, but it's sad when you have to restart the process again almost, but it teaches us something. The Word of God is precious. It uh, needs to be hidden, not just in the book, but it needs to be placed in the heart. You see, back in those days, Satan was very busy going about the business of burning the Bibles. That's why the Bibles were very few and far in between. And the reason for doing that was to keep people from reading it. Today, Satan is still burning the Word of God, but not using fire. The question is, what is he using in your life to keep you from reading God's Word? From feeding on the manna that will give health and nourishment to your soul. That will qualify you and help you to be one of the restorers 
of the breach. You see, even the prophets of old stood on the word of God. Uh, Job tells us that he esteemed the word of God more than his necessary food. How many times have we neglected the word of God? Let's take that lesson on board. Because we are told that in the last days, God will have a people who will value God's word above all things. This is what we are told in Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4. God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrine and the basis of all reforms. The opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority, not one or all of these should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord in its support. We're told that God would have a people of that caliber. And the question is, is that you and is that me? As we look at the lesson of the reformers, we find an illustration of those who stood on the word of God, what it will put them through. So let us diligently in private, read and feed on the word of truth. Looking at the word of truth, another question that was brought out in the Reformation was a question of authority. In his debate with Dr. Eck, Luther was questioned and challenged with the authority of the Church of Rome. Dr. Eck said Luther must submit to the authority of the Church of Rome because it was supreme in matters of faith. And Luther replied to Dr. Egg in the following words. He said, the Reverend Doctor flees before the Holy Scriptures as the devil does before the cross. For my part, with all due reference to the fathers, I prefer the authority of Scripture and recommend it to our judges. This is a very, very important question that was brought out in the Reformation, the question of authority. And Luther was seen as rebelling against the authority of the church. But Luther had learned that there is a higher authority that resides where? In the Word. You see, God has told us that. Let's come to Psalm chapter 138. Psalm 138. And as we learn of the authority of the word, it does something to us. Psalm 138 and verse 2. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. What has God done? He has magnified his word. What's magnified mean? He's exalted, honored, uplifted his word above all his name. Isn't that an interesting verse? What does that mean? Is God's name holy and reverent? Is God's name, God's name to be uh, taken lightly at all? 
we are to respect, we are not to blaspheme God's name, we are to honor it, because God's name represents Him. God says He has exalted and magnified His word above all His name. With that comes the authority of the author of that word. Luther recognized that, so he was not uh, doubtful when he stood and referred Dr. Egg to the authority of the word. He said, I have a higher authority for what I'm doing. It's higher than the Church of Rome. And it was this principle that really questioned the entire papal system. This was the power of the Reformation. This was the vital principle that undid the iron fist that Rome had held over people. And for us today, the same principle applies. As we read and as we feast on the Word of God, we are also to recognize the power and the authority contained in the Word of God. This authority is above all the authority, assumed authority of men. And when the enemies of Luther appealed time and again in defense of doctrine to the authority of the church, Luther always referred them to the authority of the Word. And so the phrase, the familiar phrase, sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only was the watchword of the Reformation. Why? Because the question of who decides doctrine, who has the final say, was being challenged. Is it the church or is it the Word of God? And we're told that God's people also must implement that principle. In the book Acts of the Apostles, we have the following very interesting statement. It says, God's Word must be recognized as above all human legislation. A thus saith the Lord is not to be set aside, for a thus saith the church, or a thus saith the state. The crown of Christ is to be lifted above the diadems of earthly potentates. And the time will come very, very soon when that challenge will come home to some of us. When God's word, a thus saith the Lord, will be set against a thus saith the church, or a thus saith the state. And we're told that we are to honor and recognize the word because we recognize its authority. And just like Peter and the disciples, when they were preaching the resurrection of Christ and they were asked, uh, not too kindly perhaps, by the Pharisees to cease and desist. Remember what Peter said. He said, we cannot but speak the words which we have seen and heard. And this is what we're told for us as well. We are to go forward in Christ's name, advocating the truths committed to us. If we are forbidden by men to do this work, then we may say, as did the apostles, whether it be right in the sight of God, to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. This can only come from an intimate knowledge of the author of the word, and the intrinsic authority that lies in that word. The reformers recognize this, and we are to recognize that. But this does not come on the spur of the moment. This comes from a regular diet of spiritual manna. A regular diet of spiritual manna. This is a diet that we cannot fast from. You know, we're told that fasting from physical food is good every now and then. Not so with the spiritual manna. We need to have a constant intake of spiritual man. Otherwise, we suffer spiritual indigestion. You see, our actions and our, uh, the things that we do are motivated by our conscience. And the highest authority for our conscience must be nothing but 
the Word of God. And so when our conscience, as Luther's was, is captive to the Word of God, it will dictate our actions. It will move us to do those things that God desires. This was the principle, not only of Luther, but of all reformers, Tyndall and uh, Frith, uh, Latimer, the Ridleys and the Wesleys, and many others all recognized that. Luther was one of the pioneers. He had some before him, but his name stands as one of the greatest. So this high calling we must remember. This is why it is vital for us to study God's word properly so that we can rightly divide the word. Because it would be a great tragedy to stand up and promote what we believe is truth on the authority of the word when we are not dividing it correctly. That's why we're admonished many times. We must carefully divide the word of truth. We must discern what is truth and what is error. So this is an important lesson for us as well. You see, another important point that comes out from the beautiful story of Luther as we continue with what happened. Luther was a man that was challenged many times and as a result, he became acquainted with the author of the word and his acquaintance led him many times to engage in communion with the author of the word. And of course we call that prayer. Many of God's faithful people were mighty men because they were men of prayer. Luther had to be a man of prayer because he was facing mighty foes. Those who became acquainted with the word and those who do become acquainted with the word immediately will recognize the necessity of communing with its author, the vital need of prayer. You see, something very, very serious happened as Luther progressed in sharing his truth on the Reformation. In June 1520, Pope Leo X issued a bull condemning Luther and the Reformation. This was the highest verdict in the church at the time. Luther was officially excommunicated and the, Luther, uh, the Pope sent out the bull as an open letter all the way to Germany. That means that the messenger who was carrying the letter would stop in every town on the way and read the letter publicly and get copies of it printed and distributed in all the town, as he was making his way to deliver that bull to Luther. After some time, he arrived and delivered the bull to Luther, and on December the 10th, in 1520, Luther burned the bull of Pope Leo in the fire. That's how much it meant to him. Now this was a very, very defiant act. This was a very, very important Act. And uh, Luther now was called into question. Through the intervention of God and uh, influential friends who had seen the light of what Luther was doing, uh, the new emperor at the time, Charles V, had just ascended the throne, and so a council was convened where Luther was called upon to answer for his faith. This council in itself shows that the authority of Rome was starting to lose power because the bull had already pronounced Luther as a heretic and that his writings were condemned. But here we have a council that is going to look into this question to decide that. And so the authority of Rome was starting to lose power. Of course, Charles V, when he ascended the throne, was an inf uh, very... Uh, he was influenced because he was only 19 years old and the representatives of Rome talked him into, uh, tried to talk him into canceling that, but 
his, uh, his uh, nobles and, and the electors in his uh, kingdom convinced him that the man cannot be condemned without a hearing, without giving him an opportunity at least to defend himself and see if he will retract. And so this was the purpose of the Diet of Worms. It was convened to deal with the reformer. And at length, Luther was brought to stand before the council. And uh, the emperor, of course, was there, and all the nobles and all the great men of the kingdom were there. It was a very, very impressive place to be for a humble monk who was used to sleeping on the floor and eating dry bread. It was a very, very impressive scene, and Luther was a little bit shaken as he first came in. This is how we are told the, about the impressiveness of the scene. At length, Luther stood before the council. The emperor occupied the throne. He was surrounded by the most illustrious personages in the empire. Never had any man appeared in the presence of a more imposing assembly than that before which Martin Luther was to answer for his faith. This was a very, very decisive moment. And when he was brought before the deity, he was asked two questions. That's what they were interested in determining. Two questions, and they were this. Are these books yours, and are you going to recant? Luther answered the first question after he examined the books, and said, yes, the books are mine, I have written them. But before answering the second question, Luther requested more time. He said, can I think on this. And he requested that he might be granted a day. And so the emperor agreed, and the next day was the opportunity where Luther was going to be given a chance to answer the second question, will he recant? The next day, of course, as the hour drew near, Luther felt the solemnity of the occasion. You see, he was not only going to speak to the deity, he was really going to speak to the whole world. His writings have gone all over Europe. And his answer was going to be so momentous, Luther could not even dream of going in there without engaging in earnest prayer. And this is what he did. Amazingly enough, we have actually some sentences of his prayer preserved for us by some of his friends who overheard him praying. And we can read some of those words that he prayed just before going in, and this is what Luther said. God Almighty, God Eternal, how terrible is the world, how it opens its mouth to swallow me up, and how defective my confidence in thee, how weak the flesh, how powerful Satan. If I must put my hope in that which the world calls powerful, I am undone. The knell is struck and judgment is pronounced, O God, O God, O Thou my God. Assist me against all the wisdom of the world. Do it, thou must do it, thou alone. For it is not my work, but thine. I have nothing to do here. I have nothing to do contending thus with the mighty of the world. I too would have liked to spend tranquil and happy days. But the cause is thine, and it is just and everlasting. O Lord, be my help, faithful God, immutable God. I trust not in any man that were vain. All that is of man vacillates. All that comes of man gives way. O oh God, O oh God, dost thou not hear? My God, art thou dead? No, thou canst not die. 
Thou only hidest thyself. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. Act then, O God. Stand by my side for the sake Stand by my side for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who is my defense, my buckler, and my fortress. Come, come, I am ready. I am ready to give up my life for thy truth, patient as a lamb, for the cause is just and it is thine. I will not break off from thee, either now or through eternity. And though the world should be filled with devils, though my body, which, however, is the work of thy hands, should bite the dust, be ragged on the wheel, cut in pieces, ground to powder. My soul is thine. Yes, thy word is my pledge. My soul belongs to thee and will be eternally near thee. Amen. O oh God, help me. Amen. Doesn't that stir your heart as you read through those words? That was a decisive moment for the world. The world changed as a result of that. And Luther could not approach that moment without consulting God in that wonderful prayer. He was expecting to be killed in all these possible ways. He knew that lay ahead of him. And he had to grasp by faith in God. Luther was a man of prayer. And those who want to be repairers and reformers must also be men of prayer. As the psalmist says, In my distress I called upon the Lord, I cried unto my God, and He heard my voice, and He answered my prayer. Jesus had promised that when they bring you before councils, and the rulers of this world, He said, Take no thought what you will answer, because it will be given to you in that moment what you shall say. Luther, I am sure, claimed that promise, and sought God to give him the words in how he would answer. And when he was asked that question that day, to give an answer whether he would recant or not, he gave a wonderful answer. You can read about it in uh, history books. But the words that stand out, the famous words at the end of his reply, was when Luther said, Here I take my stand. He said, I cannot recant. I will not recant. And I take my stand here. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. Amen. And these words are the words that stand out from that wonderful, wonderful experience that Luther had. He was going up against mighty foes. And the power and the strength that Luther had on the next day when he entered the deed was marked by his friends. You see, the first day when he entered, he was very conscious and aware of his humble estate, and he was a little bit shaken by all the mighty men in the empire that he had to stand in front of. But the next day, after his season of prayer, after communing with the Most High God, he did not, no longer tremble in the presence of men. And that marked difference was noticed by uh, his friends and the people that were present. You know, his countenance, he had a calm, he had a peace, he had a faith and trust in God. And he took his stand. And this power that aided Luther only came through prayer. This was the power that enabled him to do that. He had communed with his Savior, and his Savior imparted to him what he promises to impart to each one of us, the author of the word. This is what we're told in Spirit Proxy Volume 4. From the secret place of prayer came the power that shook the world in the Great Reformation. There with holy calmness the servants of the Lord set their feet upon the rock of his promises. 
During the struggle at Augsburg, Luther did not fail to devote three hours each day to prayer. And these were taken from that portion of the day most favorable to study. Isn't that amazing? How else do you think Luther succeeded in what he was doing? Now, I'm not going to ask you when the last time was when you prayed for three hours. You probably can't remember when that last time was. And what we're meaning here is not the length of our prayer. I don't want to be misunderstood. Because this morning we heard very clearly, it's not our works that really earn us any favor in God's sight. But these principles that we're looking at is what enables us to partake richly of that grace of Christ. As we commune with Him, that communion as it grows and grows, the time loses its significance and the quality of the prayer is what really feeds our soul as we commune with God. And this is what Luther did and this is what God's people who will stand for truth will also do. Luther's prayer, as we said, was heard. God provided for him to be captured by his friends and hidden from the death stroke of Rome. Rome had it with Luther. He said he's dead man. He's a dead man. You see, Luther came to the deed with a safe conduct from the emperor. And the emperor was, uh, you know, they tried, the, the representatives of Rome tried their best to convince him that he should not honor the conduct of, or the safety conduct. He said, you have to break that, you have to kill him. He is a heretic, he is not renouncing, he must die now. You see, they had succeeded in convincing the emperor Sigismund many years ago in doing that very thing to John Huss. And John Huss was denied his safe conduct, and he was betrayed and killed. But the emperor stood his ground and said, No, we have given him a safe conduct. He can travel safely home, but as soon as he arrives home, he will be killed. Well, God provided an answer for Luther, and his friends captured him on the way home and hid him in the castle. And during that time, Luther spent his time writing more material, but more importantly, he was able to translate the scriptures into the German language and so provided for the people, the common people who could not access it in the Latin and in the Hebrew and in the Greek languages in which it was lost. Men of faith and prayer in the same way will be constrained to do a work exposing the sins of Babylon in the last days. Their description in the spirit of prophecy is that they are men of faith and prayer. You know, I read that and I think, Lord, Help me to be a man of prayer. I am not a man of prayer. I don't think I pray enough. And as Pastor Des says, sometimes we get into situations where we even don't feel like praying. And I'm sure some of us can relate to that. Prayer is the strength of the Christian. Prayerlessness is powerlessness. And we learn that from Luther and we must apply that in our lives. That we might gain the wonderful blessing that is contained in prayer. Not to save us, what we're talking about here are not things that will earn us salvation, but they are things that will give our Christian walk a quality that will attract people to Jesus. Men of faith and prayer will be able to do that. This is what Jesus told us. Watch, therefore, and pray, lest he enter into temptation, and that he might be accounted worthy to escape all those things that will come to pass. An important aspect that is very closely associated with prayer, I just want to spend a few minutes looking at that as we close, is mentioned in Psalm 119. We're not too far. Let's go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Look at verses 
147 and 148. spiritual truths. 
It's to keep the mind in communion with God by dwelling on his thoughts. Eastern meditation, on the other hand, suggests that we must empty the mind of everything. Totally empty the mind. But true meditation, biblical meditation, is the exact opposite. It is to fill the mind with scripture. It is to think and fill the mind with the thoughts that God has inspired. Notice how else it's associated with scripture. Let's go to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. And this lost art, we must revive again. Joshua chapter 1. Just after Deuteronomy, Joshua chapter 1. Notice how God instructs Joshua as we look at this important aspect. Verse 8. It says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. Here we see meditation is linked with prayer, and is linked with the law, or with the Bible. And that's what keeps the Word of God active in our day-to-day -day life. To meditate on the word. This is why in Psalm chapter 1 the Bible tells us, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is where? In the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Meditation. He keeps the word with him. He doesn't just read it and leave it, but he keeps his mind actively engaged, meditating on it. And this is, of course, the counsel that Paul gave to Timothy as well. He told him to preach the gospel and to also meditate on these things. Meditation is something that we need not lose in the bustle and activity of our day-to-day -day life. This is how we can keep the word of Christ dwelling richly in us. This is what the reformers did. This is what we can do by God's grace. That will enable us to be used by God as repairers of that breach. If we don't bury the good seed in the heart, we will not be able to reap the harvest. And the purpose for these things that God has given us, reading the word, praying, and meditating on it, is to enable us to have that sustaining grace that will give us victory over our ancient foe that we sang about. Our ancient foe who seeks to work as well. You see, we sang that song, The Mighty Fortress, that was written by Luther. Powerful, powerful words. And the Word of God is our weapon against that. We must keep the Word of God in our hearts. But you see, even great men make mistakes. And as we look at the example of Luther, we must also recognize that Luther is not a perfect example. Even Luther made mistakes, as well as many other reformers. Their mistakes were in using the very same tactics that were used against them. Even the Protestant movement turn its persecuting power against those who are advancing further into the truth. And uh, we won't have time to go into the, all that now. But the Anabaptists were a group of people who were known for their deviant and heretical ways. They were so heretical that they actually baptized adults by immersion. They dared believe that the soul, when it is dead, it is asleep. There's no immortality of the soul. And some of them even kept the Sabbath. You see, even the reformers thought that this was so different, so, you know, far out, 
that they sanctioned in their councils decisions to persecute the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists were tortured, they were uh, persecuted, and one of the most common ways in which the Anabaptists were put to death was by drowning. Luther himself was worried that he would be classed among the Anabaptists, and so he did not wholeheartedly accept some of the things that, he, that they were saying. I'm not trying to paint Luther in a bad light. Luther was a human being. And we also are human beings. And even though Luther was chosen by God to do a great work, that does not guarantee that he will always continue to do a great work. He must always keep those principles that we talked about in mind. We also must keep those principles in mind. It's a danger for us all. That's why Paul says we must examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Daily we must examine ourselves. And the fact that we have truth or have been used by God to promote truth does not guarantee us anything. This is a warning and a lesson for us. We are told very, very plainly that we, in testimonies to ministers, we may have long followed the narrow path, but it is not safe to take this as proof that we shall follow it to the end. Yet how many times we are tempted to think that, well, we're on the right track now, and we have a sense of confidence. There's no guarantee that because you believe truth, or that you have been used by God even, there's no guarantee that you will continue and follow that path to the end, except if you continue in the same way that you started, by keeping a recognition and a realization that God's Word is a source of power. He is the author, not us. And we do not become wise enough after a while to make decisions on matters of truth. And this is how we can also come to a point where we can reject truth if we become overconfident in ourselves. This was the trap for the Reformers. Some of them fell in it. Let us be careful as we apply the lessons of the Reformers to learn also from their mistakes. So let us learn those precious lessons, if we are to be some of His faithful ones today. Let us feed on the Word of God. Let us make it our daily food. Not to earn any points with God. God's not going to save us based on how many hours we spent in our life reading the Bible. I just want to make that clear. And those who read it for more hours get front seats. That's not how it works. But God will have a relationship with us. The quality of our relationship with God will be determined by how much time we spend with Him in His Word, communing with Him in prayer, and meditating upon those things which we read and which we learn through the Word. So I want you and me, and I'm saying this for me as much as you, believe me, if not more, because I lag in those areas. I could do with more Bible reading, couldn't you? I could do with more prayer and all meditation, for sure. I need to apply these things more in my life. Jesus deserves that, doesn't he? He did all that for us, and he wants that in return. That gives him joy, that gives him satisfaction, that the creatures of his hand that he has purchased at such a great cost can actually return to him in communion, in meditation, that which he deserves. So let us, you and me, recommit today to 
this purpose. If we haven't been doing it, now is a good opportunity to come and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I want to commit more. Because we're getting really close to the end, brethren, and we need all the faith that we have, and especially that we don't have yet, in order to withstand the storm that is coming. So join me now as we pray and as we silently, as we recommit that that is your decision to God, that we might be men and women of faith and prayer, and we might be some of His faithful men. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.